We begin our study in the book of Exodus chapter 17. If you'll turn there in verses 8 through 16, we're going to look at the appearances of Joshua. Our study in the book of Joshua is going to begin with an overview of how we see Joshua in the writings of Moses. By the way, Bible characters often illustrate some grace in our life. In Abraham, we have a picture of faith. In Joseph, we have a picture of purity. In Moses, we have a picture of meekness. In David, courage. In Jonathan, love. In Samuel, we see a picture of faithfulness. And in Joshua, we see something remarkable. It's servant leadership. Joshua was Moses' servant before he became Moses' successor. And Joshua is mentioned some seven times in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those brief mentions, we're able to see Events that shape his life and form his character. God is going to use those events. He's going to use Moses and miracles to prepare Joshua to lead God's people from their wilderness wanderings into the promised land. You'll remember that Joshua began his life as a slave in Egypt. And again, it becomes a type and a picture because all of us began our lives as slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin. And God sent Jesus to be our Savior. And of course, we see in the Old Testament, God will send Moses with a message of hope and redemption and liberation. And it's interesting to me That Joshua's life was filled with blessing and filled with battles. And so it is for the Christian. The Christian life isn't just simply a blessing. It is a battle. And so the life of Joshua and the book of Joshua is going to serve as a bridge to the books of the law, to the historical books, but it's also going to serve as an illustration of what it means to have victory in our lives. Slavery to sin brings brokenness. Liberation brings recovery, but recovery also must lead to victory. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, you'll remember Jesus said, the thief comes not except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so the book of Joshua has several important themes, but its major theme is the capture and the occupation of the promised land. And the book of Joshua will chronicle the military campaigns under Joshua's capable leadership. Joshua knew that victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word rather than through numerical strength or military superiority. And so before we begin our study in the book of Joshua, we begin our study with the man Joshua. And in 
Exodus 17, we're going to see a man of prayer. And in Exodus 24, a man of vision. And in Exodus 33, a man of devotion. And in Numbers chapter 11, a man who is loyal. And in Numbers 13 and 14, a man of faith. In Numbers 27 through 18, actually verses 18 and 19, a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we're going to see a man who becomes available. But all of these Things are going to serve to build him for the moment of the opening chapter of Joshua. So we begin with the man of prayer. The first mention of Joshua takes place in Exodus chapter 17. And beginning in verse 8, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephadim. Rephadim was the place of the giants. This is where the giants lived. And you'll note something right from the start that when you are a Christian and you're called to live the Christian life, you're called, we're not called to occupy a, a promised land. We're occupied to, 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 to occupy Christ. And when you became a Christian, Jesus wants to invade your life. But I suspect that there are things in your life that didn't want to leave when you became a Christian. There were things that occupied your heart and your circumstances that didn't welcome Jesus, didn't even want Jesus. And this becomes an important part of the story. Am Amalekites have attacked the rear guard of Israel. The book of Exodus is the story of God's redemption of God's people. You'll remember that Moses attempted, first of all, to liberate the people of Israel by murder. How did that turn out for him? Not so well. He buried the body in the dirt. And a few days later, he got into an argument with a Jewish person. And he said, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? <laughs> and he ran into the wilderness. Because God had to prepare him for something else. God would call Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. And then... God would use Moses to confront Pharaoh with miracles and plagues and a Passover. And the children of Israel experienced a mighty deliverance through blood and through power. Just like you, if you've experienced Christ as your Savior, you experienced being born again, being changed. And so in the wilderness, the children of Israel were plagued. By thirst and hunger and opposition and marauding tribes. And you might be thinking, when I became a Christian, I thought everything was going to be perfect and everything was going to go. I thought becoming a Christian would mean all of my problems would disappear and that I could live happily ever after. By the way, has that been any of your experiences as a Christian? Oh, there's not a single hand that's gone up. Being a Christian, like I said, is a blessing, but it is a battle. And so when it says Amalek fought with Israel in Rephidim, Moses says to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'm going to stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said, and he fought with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of a hill. 
And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, on one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And look what it says in verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Joshua's introduction to ministry when we find him is met with a battle and prayer. It begins with victory. In verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name Yehovah Tzidkenu. Jehovah, or the Lord is my banner. If you were ever a little kid and you sang the song, I'm my beloved and he is mine. His banner over me is love. That comes from this passage. It's the banner that flies. It's a banner that represents the heart of God. The Lord is my banner. It's, it's the symbol of victory. In verse 16 it says, For he said, because the Lord has sworn, and this is important, the Lord will have war with Amalek. From generation to generation, Amalek was a tribal group. When the children of Israel left Egypt and they began to make their way into the promised land, they formed troops, if you will. And they formed a people group. And at the end of the line were the very young and the very old and the sick and the stragglers. In other words, when you're talking about the movement of hundreds of thousands of people, the strong usually take the lead and the less strong are in the middle and then the absolutely weak are at the very end of the line. These were Israel's most vulnerable citizens. And Joshua is appointed to lead men and fight with Amalek. Moses says, you fight and I'll pray. And by the way, Moses was 80 years old at this time. And the victory that day made Joshua an instant celebrity. But Joshua never forgot that image of Moses praying and Aaron and her holding on to the hands of Moses. This was his introduction to ministry. The lessons are going to become obvious. Joshua learns early on that the real power is not in the sword, but in the Lord. Spurgeon was fond of saying, true prayer is true power. And so Joshua's introduction to ministry has, is this vivid picture of praying and fighting. The Christian has to cultivate the discipline of prayer and prepare for war. 
You'll remember in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, in this image of Amalek, we see a picture of the ongoing battle that's going to take place against sin, against our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. Thomas Akempis wrote, the devil doesn't sleep, nor is the flesh yet dead. Therefore, you must never cease your preparation for battle because on the right and on the left are enemies who never rest. You have a recalcitrant foe. Our battle with sin is never ending. It's true, it's true that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin and we will one day be permanently removed from the presence of sin. But the truth, there's a battle. And I want you to note something else, even though you may not know this. You may be unfamiliar with the Old Testament, with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but in the history of Exodus at this point in the stage, Everything that could possibly be done for the people of Israel were completely done by God. There was never ever a point where the children of Israel had to fight for themselves until now. Until this point. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. That's in Genesis chapter 36. You'll remember that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he had a brother named Esau. And Esau will serve as a type and an illustration of sin and war and battle. As a matter of fact, God's commitment is to have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Most Bible scholars believe that all of this is happening about 1400 BC. And by the way, if you fast forward some 400 years the Amalekites were still harassing, creating problems for the children of Israel. And this is one of the reasons why Saul is going to lose being the king is because the Lord is going to order him to utterly destroy Amalek for ambushing them on their way out of Egypt into the promised land. And again, it becomes a type, a picture, an illustration of how Satan and sin wants to ambush you and take advantage of you when you are weak, when you are empty, when you are hurt, when you are struggling, when you are straggling. And so Amalek fought with Israel at Rephidim. That's the place where the giants dwell, in the wilderness, attacking, destroying the weak as they're making their way out of Egypt into the promised land. And so God promises that he will have war with them and that he will ultimately destroy them. And this has caused a lot of people to go, you know, what a cruel and vicious God that God is that he would order the extinction of an entire people group. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Amalek was given an opportunity to repent and return to God. The Amalekites were a wicked, vicious, evil person. I want you to think of a race of people who are like Jeffrey Dahmer. For those of you who don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, he's a serial killer who would basically lure his victims into his apartment. He would cut their heads off, leech the skin off of their skulls, and then place them in the refrigerator. We're talking about a wicked, perverse group of people who hate God and reject God and everything that God stands for. That's who your enemy is. Your enemy is Satan. And the problem is sin. And so even in the New Testament, Jesus is going to invite you to deal ruthlessly with sin. If your hand offend you, cut it off. If your eye offend you, pluck it out. Paul talks about the war of the flesh and the spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, where he says, walk in the spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. And sometimes we get mixed up with the terms because we think of flesh as that stuff that hangs from the bones in our body. But your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Even what you consider to be the good things about you. Well, you know, I'm really a nice person or I'm this person or I'm a talented person or I'm a gifted person or I'm a smart person or I'm an athletic person. This is your flesh is everything that you are apart from, from Christ. And so everything that you are apart from Christ and everything that you are in Christ are at odds with each other are battling one another. Someone once used the illustration of a fight between a white dog and a black dog. Someone said, you know, I feel like there's a war going on inside of me, that there's two dogs and they're fighting with, with each other, a black dog and a white dog. And someone asked the question, which one wins? And the person said, whichever one I feed. If I feed the white dog, he defeats the black dog. If I feed the black dog, it defeats the white dog. And again, up until this point in their journey, the Lord fought for them in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. But now the Lord will choose to fight through them to overcome the enemy. And so if you're passively thinking, and maybe you've even prayed, Lord, just take this away from me. Just, Lord, I just don't want to think about this anymore. And I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't want to be this anymore. Just take it away from me. And the Lord says, I want you to pray. Oh, no, just take it away from me. I don't want to pray. And I don't want to go to church. And I don't want to read my Bible. And I don't want to be involved in a, in a home study or a small group. I don't want to actually go to church and be with I just want all of the wickedness in my life to go away. And what are you willing to do? Nothing. Well, guess what? Joshua was called to fight. But he also knew that the fight would would only be one 
Because it's not just a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. In Joshua's case, it was life and death. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Ministry, service takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. If real ministry is going to take place in your life, If you're going to truly have victory, it has to be preceded by prayer. And real leaders soon realize again that the victory isn't in the sword, but in the Lord. Victory doesn't lie in willpower or personal strength or native intelligence. Richard Blackaby tweeted this, prayer sets the focus of your life. If you focus on godly things, you'll move in a godly direction and do godly things. I think that that's exactly right. So does it shock you? Does it surprise you that the Christian life isn't simply a playground, but a battleground? And prayer isn't a toy we play with. It's a weapon we fight with. And so victorious Christian living begins with prayer. And then it continues with prayer. And then it ends with prayer. Because prayer connects us to power, not just in a superstitious or a magical kind of a way. We're talking about a connection to power, to the real God. Because guess what? The moment you bow your head and you say, Lord, you can, it becomes an admission that you can't. I could tell you repeated commands in the Bible to do so. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, pray. Romans 12, 12, pray. Colossians 4, 2, pray. You could excite the example of Jesus praying in Hebrews 5, 7, or Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. You might still come up with excuses and say, I still don't want to pray. What if I told you that prayer defeats the devil in Luke 22:32 in 1 Peter 4:7? What if I told you that prayer saves the sinner and restores the backslider and strengthens the saint? Prayer sends forth the laborers, prayer heals the sick. Prayer glorifies the name of God. Prayer accomplishes the impossible. Prayer imparts wisdom. Prayer bestows peace. Prayer keeps one from sin. Prayer reveals the will of God. Prayers should be humble and bold and pleaded in faith and surrounded by sincerity. Prayer should be simple and persistent and definite. And prayer should be in accordance with God's will. And so when I say pray, you might go, I talked to Gino and all he said, was pray but like I said prayer is the beginning you can do lots of different things but if you don't pray whatever the different things that you do aren't going to be helpful to you victory over your enemies will never be accomplished by running away from them or hiding from them, or capitulating to them. And you will never, ever have power unless you're willing to pray. 
Because again, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual undertaking. You see, victorious Christian living begins, and and here's one of the things I guess I'm just going to have to boldly and bluntly say, you will never, ever, ever have victory in your life as a Christian unless you really are a Christian. I'm not talking about a person who just shows up to church or wonders whether or not the Bible is true. I'm talking about a person who's already made a commitment that that Jesus is going to be your savior, that you've already, you believe that, that Jesus loves you, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. You've received him as your Lord and savior. You've experienced the transaction. You've passed from death into life, from darkness into light. And if that's never happened, no amount of reading and going to the church and talking to people is ever going to change the supernatural circumstances that have to take place in your life if you're ever going to be saved. Salvation makes prayer possible. But then the next mention of Joshua is in Exodus chapter 24. Look what it says. In Exodus chapter 24, for those of you who are unfamiliar... Moses is about to receive the divine pattern in the tabernacle and the priesthood. The Lord, the Lord is going to provide Moses with the plans to walk forward into the promises of God. And exactly that's what the Bible does. God provides you with the plan in order to make the journey. God provides his word and God provides the plan. What do you provide? You provide passion and desire coupled with obedience. We accomplish ministry not by inventing our own ways to serve God or our own plans that we think will make God happy, but by seeking his will, by reading his word and obeying his commandments, if you will. So the chapter begins with God confirming his covenant with his people. Moses shares the word of God with the people. So here's the picture in Exodus chapter 24. The Lord speaks to Moses and says, look, I'm going to make you a deal. If I'll be your God, if you'll be my people. And they said, we'll do it. How long do you think their resolve lasted? It evaporated within weeks. Within just a few weeks, we see the nation worshiping an idol, violating every single command that they agreed to obey. Just like some of us. Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I'll follow you forever. I'll do whatever you say. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll fellowship with other Christians. I'll start to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you. And then all of a sudden it all starts to crumble all around you. And then you find yourself saying things and doing things that you never thought you would. It's like that old Charlie Peacock song. Through some clever thinking and a strong imagination, I could twist the truth into any configuration. Found myself doing things that I never thought I would. You ever said that? Oh, Lord, I thought, I'm a, I thought you saved me from this kind of wickedness and sickness and stupidity and evil. 
The people erect a stone altar with 12 stones, which represented the 12 tribes and their willingness to obey God's word. The blood is given in verse 24 on the altar as a picture of God's forgiveness. Sprinkled blood on a people would represent forgiveness of sin and obedience to the Lord. And that's in verses 1 through 8. The blood of Jesus isn't just necessary simply for, for for the forgiveness of sin but even for imperfect service. And so we see even in this particular chapter, this picture of blood and forgiveness. And at the end of the chapter, verses 9 through 18, we have a picture of Moses, Aaron, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, with the 70 elders. Um, They're there to serve as witnesses to the glory of God and the mountain. And it's what's interesting in verse 11, if you look at it, it said, well, actually in verse 8 it says, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to these words. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus is going to repeat something very similar in the New Testament when he talks about his body and blood. And in verses 9 It says, then Moses went up also with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and they were under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like like the very heavens in its clarity, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he didn't lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now think about this. They see God, and they eat, and they drink. How come they're not destroyed? How come they're not consumed? How is it possible that they see God and they're able to carry on their life like everything is normal? It's because of forgiveness. It's because of blood. It's because of friendship and fellowship. And then it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I'll give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. In verse 13, this is the second mention of Joshua. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. I want you to see the picture. Where is Moses? He's on the top of the mountain. What's he doing? He's receiving the tablets of stone. What's Joshua doing? He's at the base of the mountain. What does he see? The glory of God. He sees the majesty of God. He sees something amazing. And he never forgets it. Joshua was with Moses while the glorious cloud covers Sinai in verse 16. On the seventh day, Moses goes alone and leaves Joshua there in verse 18 for 40 days. And he's never the same. The experience of that vision burned in his heart, a deep sense of God's glory and God's holiness and God's power. Joshua was an eyewitness to what was called the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory cloud. The servant leader serves from this deep vision of what God is really like. And this it's this vision that will make all of the difference in the world. He sees something and this exactly is what victorious Christian living is going to include. It isn't simply prayer, but it is this deep vision that you see of what 
what life could really be like, what your heart could really be like, what knowing and loving him could really be like. You know, I grew up in the Jesus movement, and when I got saved, I went into this this tent, and there were literally thousands of people singing songs of praise to Jesus, committing their lives to Jesus. When I left Southern California and I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico with Skip Heitzig, in the 1980s, our church was the fastest growing church in America. I would do a Monday Bible study and 500 people would show up. I come to Denver and 35 people show up. You know, it was six, over 16 years ago. And our church was about the same size as this 16 years ago. How awful is that? And I remember saying, Lord, why did you bring me to this empty, dark, desert place? And the Lord said, how many people have to show up before your ego will be satisfied? And I went, ooh. But then I thought about it, 10,000 maybe? (laughs) If 10,000 people show up, that would just really be fairly cool. 10,000 people never showed up. But you know, over 16 years ago, I started a radio program, and I'm sure that 1,000 people, and then 10,000 people, and then 16,000 people, and sometimes 100,000 people will listen. But guess what? On Friday, not day after tomorrow, but a week from Friday, my radio's program over with. And you know what? I don't need to speak to 100,000 people. I don't need to speak to 50,000 people. I don't even need to speak to 10,000 people. I'm willing to speak to 35 people. If they're willing to do what God wants them to do. I'm tired of talking to people who don't come. I want to talk to people who do come. I want people to have a vision of what church could really be like. I want people to see what church could really be like in a place where people are praying and they have a vision of what God is really like. And we should pause for just a few moments and ask ourselves several different questions. And that is, remember, if Joshua is serving from this deep vision of what God is really like, we need to ask the question, are my thoughts about God, are my thoughts about his nature and character and power and holiness are my thoughts about what God is really like. Is that what the Bible says about him? Are my thoughts worthy of this great God? Do I find myself viewing God differently than how the Bible describes him as good and compassionate, as present and loving, who is powerful and holy? Joshua is sitting with Moses. Moses is at the top of the mountain and Joshua is at the bottom of the mountain, but because he never ever forgets this moment later on in Joshua chapter five, verses 13 through 17, he has this encounter with this person in the Bible that's called the captain of the hosts. 
And the captain of the Lord was a warrior in full dress battle uniform. And his sword was by his side. And it says, and Joshua worshipped the Lord. While Moses is on the top of the mountain receiving the law, Joshua is at the bottom of the mountain witnessing the vision. And the vision was a vision of God in his power, in his majesty, in his holiness, in his glory. And have you ever seen that? Have you ever witnessed that? Is that what you saw when Jesus came into your life? Did you see this remarkable God who had the ability to wash you and cleanse you and powerfully save you? In Proverbs 29:18 it says where there is no vision the people perish. In the book of Judges We see people in a constant state of defeat, punctuated by periods of victory and deliverance. Their lives were dominated by slavery, defeat, unbelief, declension, disobedience, earthly emphasis, sorrow, weakness, disunity among the tribes, a lack of leadership. Now you know why I didn't want to teach the book of Judges now. I don't want to teach a book about where people do whatever they want. We're going to get to Judges, but I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about victory and faith and freedom and progress and obedience and and obedience to a heavenly vision about joy and strength and unity among the, the tribes and strong leadership. And guess what? We have to begin to ask and answer a different kind of a question. What is vision? What is that? We say it almost euphemistically. People will come to our church and they'll say, what's your vision for the church? It's their way of, it's code for what are you going to do? In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it's, there's this remarkable passage of scripture where Isaiah, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Do you remember David's vision of the God of Israel? When David was a young man tending his father's flock, he contemplated the power, the grandeur, the majesty, the enormity of God. And later he meets Goliath in battle. And it's not David's fighting skill or his athletic ability or his intrinsic giftedness that will give him courage and strength to face the giant. It's his vision of the Lord. You should make a mental note right at this very moment. My vision of God will give me courage to fight the necessary battles to experience victorious Christian living. You're going to need courage to pray. And you're going to need courage to fight. And you're going to need courage to see the invisible. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, it says, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and carries away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The God of the Bible is a living God, not a dead God, not the product of your imagination. And so the servant of the Lord... The leader, the person who wants to experience victorious Christian living, is going to see God. We see God in the word of God and in the creation of God. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he sees God in his sovereignty. That's the throne. Elevated, high and lifted up. And you can't see God sovereignly while you think you're still in control. You can't see God high and lifted up unless you're low, low, low to the ground. And by the way, vision is never a substitute for prayer or dependence. So let me help you with this. If prayer is dependence upon God, then vision is the ability to see God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. Now we begin to understand what it means in Matthew 5.8 when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you know why the pure in heart see God? Because they can't see anything else. When I was a kid growing up, there's some of you old enough to remember. But back in the day, there were stupid commercials just like there are now on TV. And one of those stupid commercials was an ivory soap commercial. And it said, ivory soap is 99.9% pure. No additives. No perfume. No fillers. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Why? No additives, no perfumes, no fillers. There's a singular vision. There's nothing, there's nothing that will block their view. Pray for a growing awareness of the glory of God, the majesty of God, the attributes of God, the enormity of God. Pray for the grace that you're going to need to believe what you read in the Bible about God and his universe. It was Frank Gaines who said, only he who can see the invisible can do the impossible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says, we trust in the living God. The invisible becomes visible by faith. We see the Lord in his holiness in 1 John 1, 5. We see the heart of his love in John 3, 16. We see the revelation of his son in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. We see God in the might of his spirit, Acts 1, 8. We see God in the sufficiency of his grace, 2 
Timothy chapter 9 verse 8 or 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8. We see God in the purpose of his will, Hebrews 13, 20. We see God in the promise of his word. We see the holiness of God, the heart of God, the revelation of God, the might of his spirit, the sufficiency of his grace, the purpose of his will, the promise of his word, and now prayer added to vision creates a mechanism where you're going to grow. It was E. Paul Hovey who said, a blind man's world is bound by the limits of his touch, an ignorant man's world by the limits of his knowledge, a great man's world by the limits of his vision. Charles Swindoll said, Vision encompasses vast vistas outside the realm of the predictable and the safe and the expected. Stephen Weiss said, quote, vision looks inward and becomes duty. Vision looks outward and becomes aspiration. Vision looks upward and it becomes faith. Vance Havner writes, quote, the vision must be Followed by the venture. I like that. Vance Havner says, the vision must be followed by the venture. He says, it's not enough to stare up the steps. We must step up the stairs. Imagine you see the steps right before you. You see the steps. What I, when I read that, I thought of, the story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder where he sees a ladder come down from heaven and there are angels ascending and descending from heaven to the earth and from the earth to heaven. He has this vision and it never ever goes away. It informs his thinking for the rest of his life. When you have a vision of God, when you see what church could be like, when you see what life could be like, when you see what ministry could be like, when you see what victory could be like, then you're never going to be satisfied with being empty and dark and alone and living in a constant state of brokenness moving towards recovery, but never experiencing victory. The first step is prayer. The second step is vision. We're going to ascend these steps. But sometimes you have to do it one step at a time. I've had the privilege of most of my grandchildren spending at least some of their life with me at my home. And I have stairs that go from the first floor to the second floor. And I've watched my little grandkids climb those stairs. The first thing that they ever did before they ever climbed them was they looked up. Even before they looked up, they were carried up. But then there came a time when they had to take their first step. And then their second step. Don't be frustrated that it may take some time to take the first step. You might say, yeah, I'll get around to that. I'll get around to praying soon. 
I know I should have a quiet time. I know I should pray. I know I should pray with my family and I should pray with my wife and I know that I should pray for my children and I know I should pray for the ministry and I know that I should pray and I should be a man of prayer. Don't get frustrated if you don't change overnight, but I can't tell you anything other than this. Just start doing it. Get up in the morning and pray. I don't know what to pray. There's, you can pray about everything. Pray for me. Pray for the church. Pray for the nation. Pray for its leaders. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. The first step is prayer. But there'll never be a second step without the first step. Prayer will lead to vision. And there's nothing as powerful, there's nothing as powerful, Victor Hugo said, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. Prayer allows us to see God. But here's the key. Once you see him, you must serve him. What is it that you want exactly? If you want a lifetime of repeated victories punctuated by challenges and obstacles, or if you want a lifetime of repeated defeats punctuated by moments of relief, you will actually have exactly what you want. You'll have a life of brokenness and recovery or you'll have a life of victory. The Christian life is a blessing. But it's also a battle. And you have to prepare for war. And in each of these steps that we take with Joshua as he's going to make his way to that place where he's going to stand across from the Jordan and he's going to be tasked with leading a group of people into the place of promise. All of these things are going to be necessary for when the battle takes place. Those of you who have ever been involved in athletics, you know that it takes time and preparation and conditioning that moment and guess what? The moment's coming. We're going to have communion in just a few seconds here. I'm going to have Carolyn come up and we're going to pray and we're going to have communion. But just like in Exodus chapter 24, if you look at verse 3, it says, So Moses came to the people with all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered and said with one voice, all the words which the Lord has said will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes. Then he sent young men of the children 
of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the blood. And Moses took half the blood and put it on the basins and half of the blood. He sprinkled it on the altar and then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And it says, and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all of these words. Salvation has always been by blood. It's blood on the covenant and blood on the people that makes prayer possible so that you can see God. Salvation has always been by blood. It's always been by a person. It's always been by grace. It's always been through faith. That has never changed. And so we're going to have communion in a moment. I'm going to pray, and we're going to partake together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for our little introduction to Joshua. Lord, we look forward to the other mentions of him and throughout the Old Testament as we build a case of what it means to be a lover and a servant, and a leader, a person who will take the challenge to love you and serve you and walk with you into a future that you've assigned. Lord, it seems to me to make good sense that Hosea, Joshua's, the Old Testament name for Jesus, and that our Savior will lead us also out of the place of pain, out of the place of brokenness to a place of recovery and find ourselves in a place of victory. Again, Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity that, Lord, we can remember what Jesus has done for us, how his sacrifice and his shed blood makes it possible even for us to pray to draw near to you, to believe you, to love you, to experience what it means to have support, comfort. And so, Lord, again, as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made and the provision that's been made by his broken body, and shed blood. Lord, we want to renew our commitment, our loyalty, knowing that in the end, you are our victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.